Welcome to The Well Woman Show. Each episode is a transformational journey using mindfulness, feminism, leadership, and strategy to support you to thrive personally, generate wealth, and impact your community. COVID-19 has actually exposed those and brought those inequalities to surface. And similar pandemics in, in the past have done so, but not to this uh, not to this extent. And now, here's your host, feminist thought leader, London School of Economics grad, leadership consultant, and transformational coach, Giovanna. Rossi. Hello, well women. Giovanna Rossi here. And today I have a show for you that is actually part three in a series looking at disparities in COVID-19, specifically at uh, sex and gender and um, taking an intersectional look as well. I speak with Professor Anuj Kapilashrami, who's a senior lecturer and associate professor of Gender and Global Health Policy at Queen Mary University of London. And it's a fascinating conversation. I love it because we talk about her work, but then we talk about her personally as well and who she is. And we talk about how gender and the burden of care play an important role in pandemics. We talk about women's needs in combating COVID-19 and how COVID-19 reveals many inequalities and injustices in our system. All the information shared today can be found at the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash 199 show. You can also continue the conversation in the Well Woman Life community group at wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico and High Desert Yoga in Albuquerque. I'm speaking with Dr. Anuj Kapilashrami. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Really excited to be here. Great. Well, we heard in the introduction a little bit about your background and your bio, but I really wanted to start with asking you, who are you in the world right now? Who are you right now? Oh, that, that's a very interesting question and a difficult one to answer um, fully, but um, I'm a feminist um, to begin with, uh, and uh, an academic activist, uh, and that's uh, really summarizes what uh, my work is and what my ethics and politics is all about. And I've been working in the fields of health policy, gender, and development for two decades, um, of which the first decade was in India. I'm very rooted in. Um, three different movements and have been very fortunate to be exposed to those perspectives while I was working in India with a women's rights organization. Um, and those three social movements have been or on sort of people health, people's health rights movement, which was emerging in about 2000 as a people's health movement uh, in different schools of feminist thoughts. So as part of the women's movements and I've been very actively campaigning on women's rights issues, on issues around violence and um, uh, issues related to Hazara's contraceptives, uh, the, the two child norm kind of policies uh, and also um, introduced to the sexuality rights movement. So at the heart, very much an act, um, activist. And uh, made my journey to the UK initially to do my doctoral work, well, which was mostly focused on health policy and governance issues um, in southern context, in the context of India. Uh, uh, but the context was so in, much being defined by a financial crisis, um, the aggressive rollout of austerity agenda, rise of populism, 
uh, that really that led me to extend my work in the UK to look at uh, health inequalities. And um, I've previously convened or led the uh, People's Health Movement in Scotland, uh, worked uh, both with communities as well as in an academic uh, capacities to really talk about issues around health equity, social justice, and human rights. So that's a very quick summary of who I am. Yes. Okay. And um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the the work that you're doing on health equity. Um, I've really been looking lately, of course, at the um, the numbers that that are appearing in the research related to uh, COVID nineteen, and some of the uh, research is showing differences um, in outcomes. Yeah. Wh- you know, in, in critical conditions and and in deaths uh but the differences between men and women of course showing that men are actually dying at a higher rate than women yeah and uh i wonder if you have some things to add to that and i and i particularly would love to ask you about adding an intersectional approach which you have suggested is lacking Absolutely. Um, So, yes, so gender is uh, an important and significant determinant of health. And we have seen in previous pandemics as well that um, in in the context of Ebola, in the context of Zika, that there are particular gendered implications of these pandemics, uh, both with regards to who gets infected and affected, but also, uh, more importantly, uh, in shaping the responses, the experiences, and in the burden of care that um, falls disproportionately on women, for instance. Um, however, what is often lacking in our understanding of pandemics is the different risk factors. Okay, we, and I think this is also uh, this also speaks to the general gap in our understanding on health inequalities. So for instance, some of the work that I've been on health inequalities in the UK context, and I've realized that there is a significant um, bias to looking, to couching all the health inequalities debates in the context of a socioeconomic status. Um, And while that really helps us to understand the role and the impact of class and wealth and income, uh, as well as employment on uh, the differential outcomes and the burden of health, it does not capture the whole picture because we know, for example, that people from uh, of particular uh, ethnicities, people of color, do not necessarily only live in the most or the least deprived areas. And they there are unique um, uh, aspects of social disadvantage that they experience which impacts on their uh, their health outcomes and health experiences of accessing health services. And this is also what we are seeing with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, there is emergent data is very insufficient to make claims on the social gradient uh, and the extent to which that social gradient operates in different contexts. But we are beginning to see, uh, look at the sex disaggregated uh, nature of um, the pandemic, sex, sex disaggregated data, and who are more dying and um, who are more impacted. There are also been there been uh, just the severity of the outbreak has also prompted calls to better understand 
the particular women's needs in combating COVID-19. And the UN Secretary General uh, appealed for, for that. Um, several other scholars have also criticized a very gendered neutral approach to pandemics in general, you know, so that and called for the need to include gender expertise in pandemic planning, in the ways we uh, develop response to the outbreak, and uh, also in post-pandemic uh, recovery. Now, okay. while I completely oh, agree with these, I, I do feel um, we also need to stretch ourselves to look at how gender then interacts with other aspects of inequalities and disadvantages and uh, creates vulnerabilities for differently disadvantaged people, including migrants and refugees, as well as um, people of certain race, ethnicity and indigeneity, disability and so on. Yes. So let's take that because there are several things that you've mentioned that I want to tease out here. But um, the first one is you talked about uh, a gender neutral response to pandemics. And I I find this so interesting because it's so true. Uh, and, And it's an issue in a lot of areas, not just in pandemics, right? Is, is this sort of gender neutral response to things. So, um, but in addition to needing to be more specific about, mm-hmm. about what women need versus what men need based on our gender roles in society, we're, we're also needing to look at what, what are some of the other um, uh, intersections of, of people that, that we could look at, that we could actually develop better responses and provide better care and better access if we took this information into account. So why isn't that happening? And how are you working, you know, to get, get a hold of that data? Or is it not available? Like, where are you with that? Sure. Um, no, it's, it's very true. I, I think the, the point that you're making about uh, res- most responses, uh, policy responses, and, and not only with COVID-19, but most policy responses tend to uh, be quite gender neutral, or they work um, on the assumptions of this nominal fairness, neutrality of procedural justice, for instance, you know, where, uh, which, where they assume that if we uh, give out certain benefits, the population out there would be able to benefit from it equally, mm. right? And what that completely misses is uh, that there are uh, certain structural inequalities um, and certain institutional um, contexts that really impact on uh, certain communities and certain populations' uh, vulnerabilities and ability to benefit from those uh, and uptake those benefits or, or uh, particular policy measures. And I think that's what becomes quite critical. If we are already beginning to see that people, um, that the migrants in several international contexts are. Uh, experiencing cross human rights violations. We are, we are getting images and we are getting stories every day um, that uh, the low income migrant workers are being, uh, uh, do not really have any place to go to because they, 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 they've lost their jobs, uh, which were in, to begin with very precarious. That whole the transient nature and the, the mobility leaves them stranded uh, in cities 
villages are not uh, willing to accept them and they're being sprayed on bleach and you know other kinds of uh, chemicals as and as they're all, always seen uh, very pathologically as these carriers and vectors of diseases so we're already seeing that there are certain populations who live in very cramped situation who cannot practice uh, social isolation are particularly vulnerable and susceptible uh, to covid-19 uh, yet they d- and they also do not have the uh, the ability or the income and the other uh, social protection to be able to combat with the impact of it so i think here intersectionality becomes uh, very critical we are only at the, at a very early stage uh, unfortunately much of the data that's being collected is not looking at these different stratifiers and that's what um, uh me and a colleague of mine are trying to push for uh the, to demand that the data that is generated is looking of course looking at sex uh, you know of of the people who are um, reporting infections but also looking at the um, uh, the ethnicity the migration status looking at the class and uh, other conditions because that's the only way we are going to have a holistic picture of um the the pandemic and would be able to target some of the uh policy measures some of the social um protection schemes that are being introduced by different countries appropriately absolutely so i i do see this and i wonder if i would love to hear your thoughts on uh obviously we wouldn't we wouldn't want to be in this situation but while we are in this situation it does seem like a great opportunity to shine the light on uh some of these issues and on the one hand it seems like health equity and health inequity is really being uh talked about on a level that you know hasn't before or not as much yeah. um and then on the other hand the other extreme hand is something you brought up which is that it, we're really we're we're seeing these inequities not being addressed so uh i'd love your thoughts on on some of that uh, I, th- i think one of the critical challenges it i mean i think pandemic uh and the covid has revealed some of these injustices and inequalities it has not created these right so these right. inequalities and injustices have always been um present in our societies and in some societies to a greater extent than others and this is what we are really seeing today um uh, in terms of the particular vulnerabilities in different countries and it is only moments like uh, like this pandemic where those inequalities come to surface uh, when people start uh, seeing communities and individuals who have uh, until now been fairly invisible in policy but also in in, in society and yeah. covid-19 has actually exposed those and brought those inequalities to surface and similar pandemics in in the past have done so but not to this uh, not to this extent and i think that provides us with a, a opportune moment to really look at public health look at um development issues from a very radically different lens and uh, intersectionality and a human rights and a feminist response to uh, through looking at these inequalities i i believe would be that radical change that public health needs today 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would just love to see us be further along than we are so that when <laughs> that so that when, you know, heads of state and and government officials are making these um, determinations and giving out instructions about social distancing, that they're doing so in a way that people actually understand what to do and that it actually makes sense for their own lives. Like you were absolutely. saying, you know, it, it's much different to tell a family of four who, you know, have both parents now working from home, earning a good income mm. uh, to tell them to do social distancing and send one person to the grocery store. It's very different to tell a family of 10 people living in a house together uh, where everybody's lost their job um, to do the same thing. And, and there are probably other more extreme examples as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and some of the research that we've conducted also internationally, um, this is actually relevant for both sort of high and middle and, and all low income contexts that there are, that, you know, that differential gaze is, is, is really important. But some of the research that I've done more recently among low income migrants in, uh, in India and in, uh, in also in the context of, in the transit context, so of the Balkans, for example, have really revealed the extremely poor uh, living uh, and working conditions, the very precarious nature of their jobs um, and the living conditions where a, a family of four to five are living in one small room in a broader rooming com compounds uh, where uh, there are about 200 people sharing one toilet and, and you know, sharing uh, one source of water supply. Uh, and I think in these conditions um, or in conditions where they're working in factories, which are still not closed simply because uh, those are the essential services, they're also producing uh, the, some of the protective equipment uh, without themselves being protected uh, and, you know, and observing all these precautionary measures that we keep talking about in terms of social distancing, quarantining and so on. And I think it, the, the kind of preventive uh, measures that we talk about becomes completely infeasible and impractical in those contexts. Uh, and we're talking, uh, we're not talking about a small minority. We're talking about millions of populations who um, of low income uh, internal migrants in, in the region of South Asia uh, and targeting preventive measures, targeting policy responses to these vulnerable groups become quite critical. Yet what we see increasingly are in countries which are, um, uh, are actually looking at migrants only uh, as vectors of disease, uh, as those who would carry um, the, the infection and the virus from these cities back to the villages and uh, facilitate that community transmission in those contexts. Uh, their own rights, their own vulnerabilities, their, uh, their access to healthcare and social protection is just not addressed in, the, in these contexts. So I think, I mean, going, going back to the point you, that you were making, we really need to start thinking about uh, the measures that we're calling for, who uh, is most affected um, uh, and who is in a position to benefit from those measures? What else do we need to, to actually uh, bring, bring the curve down? Because I think there's so much of discussion about bringing the curve down without um, talking about who is infected and what uh, sort of precarious position they are in. What resources do they have? 
available to work on this. And I think going back to the point on the intersections, you know, so when we talk about the caring responsibilities and roles being on women, we, again, that the experience is not similar for all women because some women for the, the class they belong to, uh, the kind of work they're doing, are also able to employ other women to take care of their children. They have living maids and who, who are able to take care of those um, needs. Uh, at the same time, women who are in domestic work, and most often these are the migrant women, in, whether it's in high-income country contexts or, or low-middle-income country contexts, uh, are unable to uh, be with their children uh, and, and stop working in these contexts of quarantining. So there is this huge uh, underclass that is continuing to serve people, putting themselves at risk of infection. Okay, well said. And we're going to highlight some of the points you made here in uh, in the show notes when you go to wellwomanlife.com slash podcast. You'll be able to listen to to the full interview and, and see some of the points here that uh, Dr. Kapilash Shrami is making so eloquently. Professor, I want to just take a quick break and come back with our segment that is a little bit more personal so we get to know you as a person and as a leader. We'll be right back. I'm so thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico, a monthly green healthy lifestyle publication, and for support from High Desert Yoga, promoting optimum physical health, clarity of mind, and spiritual inspiration for all. Many of you have followed my journey from consulting to women's leadership and empowerment, starting a nonprofit, raising two kids, and everything in between. I've really taken some time this year to focus in on where I can help the most women with their own desire to create social impact and also a good income for themselves and their families. As my consulting and coaching practice is growing, I found that one of my favorite things to do is the free discovery sessions. I love hearing about people's passions for the work they do, sharing what I do, and helping people understand what my hybrid consulting coaching is all about. Hint, hint, serious strategy plus spacious mindset. So if you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing, or waking up in the middle of the night anxious about money, lacking energy you need to get everything done, or procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or even if you're in a leadership role, but you're second guessing yourself and not getting things done, I'd love to talk to you. These conversations help me get clear on how I can help more leaders create the impacts and income they want so they can start living with ease and joy. Plus, you'll get a free hour with me to get crystal clear on what you want to create for your company or organization and your life and what's been holding you back. So if you're interested, you can book a call at wellwomanlife.com slash learn more. We're back on the Well Woman Show with Dr. Anuj Kapilashrami from Queen Mary University of London. She's gender and global health policy professor. She also sits on the gender advisory panel for the World Health Organization Human Reproduction Program. And uh, Professor, I want to start by asking you, uh, these, are, these are pretty personal questions. So um, the first question is, what does success in life mean for you? Well, that's, that's an interesting uh, question. Um, I think going back to my own positionality, I have I've started my journey through a, a, with a women's rights organization. So I've always believed in the power of a collective. So for me, 
ideas of success are really not about individual pursuits. Uh, this also reflects on um, my role of leading and working in larger networks, for example, Migration Health South Asia Network, or um, also uh, convening People's Health Movement in, in, in Scotland. So for me, success uh, would be related to these collective pursuits. And through collective action, being able to influence thought and action. Okay, I studied collective action in graduate school, and I actually oh, named fantastic. my I named my <laughs> consulting business after after it. So yes, absolutely, okay. um, Professor. Can you describe one personal habit you have that contributes to your own well being, particularly now? You know, as we're trying to stay healthy and well, so that you can do all of of what you're doing in your life. Right. I mean, I, I think it's about this, the, the networks that I'm part of and uh, which, which are really active and even in, in COVID, in fact, more active now. Um, and I think just being connected to people in different country and geopolitical contexts, as well as different work contexts, uh, is, is something that is keeping me sane in today's times. And also... Um, motivating me to to do more work in in this area so i think just just being surrounded by extremely i mean very very inspiring women uh, women in in india and in, in, in pakistan in, in south africa women in, in scotland i think to me just being part of that um, collective is is really um, quite motivating and the, the ability to just be connected on phone and skype and um, is what is keeping me sane. Um, yeah. But I also really love um, popular culture and I, I love dancing. And that's the only bit that I do be besides activism and, and uh, academia. Okay, what kind of dancing? Oh, good question. I mean, I just dance to music. I just move with music. Um, oh, okay. But I, I do what, um, uh, what Britain told me I did uh, several years ago uh, is uh, Bollywood dancing. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I didn't realize that up until then that uh, that's what I it was. was dancing uh, was really, was being framed as Bollywood dancing in, in the UK. <laughs> you could probably give a class on it. <laughs> Bollywood with Dr. Anush. Um, okay, great. Well, a uh, couple last few questions here. What superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? Oh, um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think it, it, it's just uh, the energy that I derive uh, from inspiring people around me uh, and in turn be able to inspire uh, people in those um, who, who are part of that collective. I think that's, that is what I would say. I'm also conscious of, I mean, I think and that uh, there is always, you know, elements that you can draw uh, from people and and learn in your own pursuit, and that's something I um, I feel that's that's quite critical. It's just moving on. I mean, the the context and the times that we're living today, where everyone's um, really pressured, stretched, um, that 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 we just come together to um, to to draw all that energy from from others and from the exciting work people are doing. Okay. And uh, what advice would you give your younger self, say, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago or more? I think um, 
I, I do I do feel that it's really uh, important for um, people to to ask to to connect and to to continue to question the powers that we see today and uh, I think over the years I have I've learned to do that more but I do feel uh, that the the, the contexts that we are living in today, where um, the, con- this, the, the sort of context of the state, the context of the market, um, and just the, the importance of not taking um, taking some of these sort of dominant or hegemonic understandings uh, without questioning them, without challenging them uh, all the time is what I would would. Recommend uh, people um, to, to to do. Okay, and last question. I usually end the show asking a question that you actually answered for me at the beginning of the show. So I'll go a little deeper with it. Um, you you said you identify as a feminist. What does that mean for you? I think what I've really been fortunate is being exposed to very different schools of feminist thoughts from early on, being part of a women's rights movement. And I've also been inspired by um, feminists from India, by, by feminists uh, uh, from, um, from, from Pakistan, uh, feminists in South Africa, uh, as well as feminists in Europe and, and the US. You know, so what it really means to me is... Um, the con having the sort of the context uh, where there is equality, there's equal opportunities, and and also the ability to constantly question the ways in which exclusion is being created every day from different inst- by different institutions, whether it be the state, the market, the religion, and and others. Okay, I love that. And it's so important for us all to question ourselves too, and how we are participating in in those exclusions. Absolutely. I, mean, I think it's a, con- a constant and a very conscious reflection of the privileges uh, and uh, the uh, oppressions that we are continuing and continually living with. And I think that's something that even the move from, from India to the UK really exposed me to uh, when I've always un- understood myself as very privileged coming from a middle class background in India, um, from a, belonging to an upper caste Hindu family uh, and having a good education and was provided for uh, by, by my parents. And, when, and also moving to uh, India when I was given the label of being part of the BAME, Black Asian Minority Ethnic Community, I also uh, un- understood how those privileges and the disadvantages um, are constantly changing and, and being shaped by the broader context that we are living in. Okay, so important. Thank you so much for your time. I've been speaking with Dr. Anush Kapilashrami. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Giovanna. I really enjoyed talking to you on these issues. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your well woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join our community. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week, so be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts 
and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.